Our scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And so whether you're, you're with us here or online, hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, as we continue on, I want to just take a moment to pray for for the teaching of God's word. And so let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us reasons to sing and to declare your goodness in the midst of hardship and pain and difficulty. And so, Lord, I ask that in this time you would meet us as we, as we gather in this space, as we are in our homes with the various challenges, questions, doubts, and struggles we have, would you meet us, comfort us, challenge us, and convict us by the power of your spirit, through the truth of your word, that we might see and behold the beauty of Jesus Christ, our King. It is in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. All right, a little, little thought experiment here. I want you to imagine a conversation between a Christian and a skeptic, okay? And they're discussing a particular Christian doctrine. And, and at one point in the conversation, the skeptic just blurts out, I, I can't believe what you're saying. I cannot fathom this idea. How could a good and wise God do such a thing? What you are claiming is implausible and offensive. Now, we, we might conclude that the, the, the subject of conversation is probably around the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the reality of hell itself. But, but that really is contingent upon where the conversation takes place, because we would expect that here in the West, in the United States. We struggle with the idea of a God of justice and judgment. But if this conversation were in war-torn Syria, you would probably find the skeptic having a hard time accepting the idea that there is a God who forgives sinners. Or if the skeptic uh, had her mother killed during the Rwandan genocide, you might find that the skeptic has a hard time believing in the idea of a God of grace. This was actually at the Rwandan genocide memorial I attended and visited several years ago. You see, we here in the West have a hard time believing in the reality of hell. The idea of hell brings into question God's goodness for some. There's no question about that. But we must not be so culturally naive and narrow to believe and miss the fact that other parts of the world find that the absence of God's judgment brings into question God's goodness, which is precisely why it's important for us to grasp the truth of what God's Word says in its totality. And so as we come to Revelation 19 and 20, this is a tough message for us to hear. But what I want us to see as we turn to this passage is this truth, is that there is no hope without judgment. There is no hope without judgment. Now, as we're going to explore this a little bit, I want to give a bit of a disclaimer. 
In Revelation 20, we come to a, a portion of Scripture. It's the only place in the Scriptures where we have this reference of the millennium. And the millennium is the 1,000-year reign of Christ, and there's a great deal of conversation and debate and discussion around what the millennium is, when it will take place, and how it relates to the return of Christ. For the, the sake of our conversation this morning, we're going to focus in on the final judgment and not the millennium. And I know, I know there's probably some questions you have about it. If you're interested, I encourage you to check out our last installment of Nothing Else Is On, where myself, Pastor Gabe Coyle, and Pastor Bill Gorman discuss the millennium a little bit more at length. And so you can check that out on our YouTube channel, Facebook. And I think there's also a link in the YouVersion app. So again, just wanted to kind of set the stage here. We're not ignoring that, but that's a place you can engage that conversation. But again, today, what we're focusing on is on hell. So just get comfortable where you are. If you're at home, hopefully you haven't turned the service off. Um, but, but we're going to get through this together. And so what I want to look at, the first thing I want to bring our attention to in Revelation 19 and 20 is this, is the good news of judgment. The good news of judgment, which I'm sure some of us are thinking, how on earth can judgment be good news? Well, I think one way to consider that question is to just think about or imagine a world where there is no promise of wrongs being righted where evil has its way, where injustice spreads without any hope of justice being established, where there's no trust in any authority to ultimately do something about the evil, injustice, and oppression in our world. It doesn't take a PhD to recognize that without a belief that injustices will be righted, we will devolve into chaos. In fact, it's very common in our day to hear people in the church, outside the church, crying for justice praying for justice, working towards justice. Now, admittedly, some of us don't fully know what that word means. It's a bit vague and equivocal, but, but we still long for justice to some degree. The reality of God's final judgment, though, is actually the basis upon which we cry out for justice. It's the reason we long to see evil done away with. And it's the reason we can trust that we don't have to take the sword into our hand to accomplish justice, we believe in a God of justice. This is in part what is being described in Revelation 20, verse 10. Look with me at chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, were they will be tormented day and night forever. Now, Jesus is declaring here that evil, injustice, oppression, sin, and even death itself has an expiration date. And that there will be a decisive and definitive moment where evil will be eradicated, where all wrongs will be righted. And this is good news. And in one sense, all of us, regardless of your belief in God, we should see this as good news. We should long for the fact that injustice will be corrected. For without it, we will either fall into the despair of evil's victory, or we will fall into the violence of vengeance. If there is no God of justice and judgment, there's really no good news. There is no hope. In fact, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, he put it this way in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. He says, violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. And Wolf knows this all too well. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. 
There is no hope without a God of judgment. For when we throw God out of the conversation of justice and judgment, we remove the basis upon which we cry out for justice in the first place. We saw off the branch we're sitting on. In fact, the, the, the idea of crying out for justice without God is like trying to remove your oxygen mask underwater in hopes to breathe better. You're admitting that you need to breathe, but you're removing the very basis upon which you can breathe. Justice and judgment is good news. But when we remove God from the conversation, not only do we remove the basis of justice, we blind ourselves from the ways in which we are complicit in the injustices and the evils around us. So while there is good news of judgment, we also have to face the hard truth of the bad news of judgment. The bad news of judgment. Revelation 19 gives us this picture of Christ coming to bring judgment upon the evil powers of the world and the institutions that wreak havoc upon humanity and creation. And they are represented by the beast and the false prophet. Look with me at Revelation 19, verse 20. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So, so we see Jesus is coming to judge powers and institutions of evil. But immediately after that, we see Jesus has also come to bring judgment upon people. In verse 21, And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Now, I know what some of us are thinking in this moment. Like, how on earth can, can meek and mild, gentle and lowly, compassionate and kind Jesus do these things? This doesn't match well with the Jesus I think I know of in the Gospels. Well, it actually gets worse, if that, if that helps you. And so, so turn with me to Revelation 20 and look at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, how can we call Jesus good if he is slaying people with a sword and throwing people into a lake of fire? This doesn't match up in our minds. And that is a good and fair question, and we need to address it. But before we address the what of judgment, we have to understand the why of judgment. It appears that the, 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 the punishment does not fit the crime. And so what we have to see is that in Revelation, Jesus is not just judging kind of this amorphous, nameless entity of evil that is floating out there in the ether. He is judging people. And I think we would prefer to believe that, that this judgment that is coming, that is warranted, is really for those who are out there, those other people, that the problems of this world are really the product of those outside of our tribe. And we fail to recognize that we are complicit in the problems that perpetuate in our world. We create the systems and structures, habits, beliefs, postures, and practices that promote and uh, um, spread injustice and evil. In fact, Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in his book, The, Archip uh, the Gulag Archipelago, he describes this in this way, the human condition. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds... And it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, if only. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? What Solzhenitsyn is saying here, and what I believe that the biblical narrative declares, 
is that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Yes, I know that's cute and Dr. Susie, but you'll, you'll remember it, right? The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And so when we recognize, yes, there's a good sense in which there is justice and judgment to come, we must also recognize the fact, the bad news of judgment is that we as sinful humans deserve that judgment. And spoiler alert, that's all of us. Because every human heart, every human heart is guilty of the greatest evil and injustice of all, namely our decision to reject God as the source of all goodness, truth, justice, beauty, and fairness. We reject him as the one to determine what is good and evil for all of us, and we assume that role for ourselves either as individuals or collectively as a human race to say, no, we will determine what is ultimately good and ultimately evil. And in so doing, we perpetuate injustice because we are terrible gods. This was the sin of the first humans that has led to the ongoing problem that continues to plague humanity that leads to the unraveling of peace and justice in our world. And this is where the biblical images of hell come into play. When we understand what's going on in Revelation, we see that the references of like the lake of fire in particular speak to this reality. So the question is, well, so is hell a literal place of fire? Perhaps. I I don't know. But it's it's much worse than that. I think we get so caught up in the image. Remember, uh, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's meant to reveal a greater reality. And I think it's hard for us to grasp, especially for us where our understanding of hell and heaven, for that matter, are, are more shaped and framed by like far side cartoons than the Bible. You know, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. This is kind of the picture we have of hell, this kind of innocuous, kind of inconsequential reality. Heaven's not really that great, hell's not really that bad. And admit it, this is kind of what you thought of when you think about hell and heaven. These are the pictures we kind of have in our mind. But, but we tend to think of hell as this place that God sends people kicking and screaming against their will that they don't want to be in. And this is actually not the biblical understanding of hell and judgment. The imagery of the fires of hell, they do convey the ideas of torment, of physical pain. But it is more accurate, I believe, to describe the, the, the fires of hell in terms of being given over to our self-destructive patterns and desires. In commenting on Revelation 19 and 20, theologian Bruce Metzger puts it this way, Hell means nothing more or less than the terrible truth that the sufferings of those who persist in rejecting God's love in Christ are self-imposed and self-perpetuated. Hell is essentially the phrase, if you play with fire, you're going to get burned, writ large. That's what hell is. People who play with fire, they get what they want. They get fire and everything that comes with it. And as a child who spent much of his uh, upbringing playing with fire, I know this reality all too well. In fact, I remember a moment, fireworks was just a part of my life. And I remember one Tuesday afternoon, like in March, I had a whole strand of like a hundred black hat firecrackers, and I put them out of my driveway, and I thought, this is a good idea. I will do this. And I lit it, and as I lit it, a police car comes right around the corner. And as they start going off, the cop car stops, pulls into the driveway, and uh, I'll just say that was not the first or the last encounter that little Reed Cappell had with law enforcement. But the point being is that I got what I, I wanted to play with fire. I wanted to play with firecrackers. I got what I want, including the consequences that comes with it. 
And this is essentially the idea and the principle and the reality of hell. Hell is ultimately Jesus giving humans what they want, which is life apart from him. Hell is not the sign that Jesus hates us. It's actually the sign of how much we hate, despise, distrust Jesus. So what is hell? It is, it is death. It is darkness. It is separation from God. Who is Jesus? He is life. He is light. And he is the presence of God made manifest in our lives. So here's the thing. Sometimes our, our caricatures of hell get so wrapped up in this, I, this flawed understanding where we tend to think of sin first and foremost as a violation of a law, which is true. It's no less than that. But we must understand sin as first and foremost a violation of a relationship. There's a reason why in Genesis 3, when, when Adam and Eve sin, God's first statement to them isn't, how dare you, it is, where are you? Sin is first and foremost a severing of a relationship. It's the difference between Megan saying to me, you broke your vow, and, and Megan saying, you broke my heart. Both are true, but, but what's of greater value and significance is the relationship that has been severed. Jesus will give you what you want. And if you don't want him, you won't get him. But know this, not having Jesus is hell. Not having Jesus is hell. And that is what is reserved for those who reject him. In his great book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller, he puts it in these terms. He says, hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, going on and on forever, one's freely chosen identity apart from God. Hell is for those who don't want Jesus, and they receive what they want. While hell is an eternal place of judgment for those who deserve it, it is also for those who choose it. Now, while Revelation tends to get the reputation as the book filled with strange stuff, and nothing but judgment, it is no less a book filled with hope and with mercy. So even though this has been a rather heavy topic already to discuss, what I want us to see as we continue on that yes, while judgment, there is a good news to judgment, there is a bad news to judgment, Revelation also shows us the best news of judgment. In Revelation 19, we see this powerful picture of Jesus this, this judge who is coming on a horse with a sword, it's a mighty, powerful picture. Stuff is about to go down, basically. That's how I would sum up this description of Jesus in 19 verses 13 through 15. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now again, remember, Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. It's meant to stoke the imagination, helping us see unseen realities. And there's a wide variety of images and symbols that are being used here to point to the greater reality of who Jesus is. So just as Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah, he is also the Lamb that was slain. And just as we see Jesus coming in in Revelation 19 as the conquering king and judge, he is also to be seen as something else. Notice, and maybe you did notice as scripture was read, that Jesus' robe is dipped in blood. Some manuscripts say it is sprinkled with blood. 
And so before the judgment even takes place, Jesus arrives to the judgment already covered in blood, which is a rather morbid picture. And the most common images in the Bible of things that are covered with blood, sprinkled with blood, are objects that are uh, associated with the sacrifice of the sins of the people of God. And Jesus in Revelation 19 is of no exception. He too is to be seen as the object of sacrifice for the sins of the people of God. He is sprinkled in blood to show himself as the true and better sacrifice for the sins of the world. Yes, Jesus has come as the conquering king who is also the suffering servant. Jesus has come as the final judge, but he has also come as the one who is judged in our place that we might receive mercy. That is the picture of Revelation 19. And this is, this is so important, I think, to grasp. The judgment of God is not his modus operandi. The, the judgment of God is not his primary posture. The judgment of God is not what he longs to do first and foremost before anything else. As, as God is looking over his to-do list, he's not hoping that judgment is at the top of the list. We kind of have this picture that, that if God could, he would just kick up his feet and drink a pina colada and judge people all day long. Like that's, that's, what, that's, my, that's, that's God's idea of heaven. But judgment is not what comes from the heart of God. In, in the tiny Old Testament book of Lamentations, chapter 3, we read these words in verse 32 and 33. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion. And according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Judgment, when God does bring judgment, it is never from his heart. He does not suspend love and mercy to be just. He is fully, completely all those things at once. But his judgment, his judgment does not come from God's heart. In fact, the 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards described it this way. God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Judgment is his strange work. Let me illustrate it this way. I have a water bottle. The contents therein is water. And so if I were to shake this water bottle, what comes out? Water, right? That's the contents of it. I didn't, didn't warn you, Jonathan, you might get wet in the first few rows. It's like SeaWorld. The, the, the point is, is that when, when this bottle is shaken, we shouldn't be surprised what comes out. Water comes out because that's what's inside of it. In the same way, when God is shaken, when he is rattled, so to speak, by our sin, what comes out of God naturally, first and foremost, primarily, is not judgment, it is mercy. It is mercy. Judgment is God's plan B. Plan A is mercy. Amen? This is the good news that we tend to miss out on in our caricatures of hell. For God's desire is that none should perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. So as we consider these really heavy and, and daunting realities and truths of Scripture, I want to suggest three quick things for us as we move forward. As we take steps forward in trying to understand what it means to submit our lives to this Jesus, this King, to recognize that judgment is good news, bad news, but there is the best news of judgment. The three things I would recommend to us is this. The first is that we should be a people who pray for justice. 
We should pray for justice. We should recognize that Jesus is, yes, our king and our savior, but he is no less judge. And a day is coming when all evils, sins, oppression, injustice, and death itself will be judged. And we should pray that God would right these wrongs, destroy all evil, and bring justice to all who are oppressed. We should recognize that Jesus is judge and king. And if, and if God, if he is not judge, if he is not, then, then he is no longer worthy of our worship. So we need to pray for justice. Second, we should be a people who show mercy. We should be a people who show mercy. As the people of God, we too should show mercy when we are shaken and rattled. Is that, is what, but is that, is that how we are described? Is that how we are known as the people of Jesus? We should be so in tune with Jesus, our King, who is rich in mercy, so that when we encounter moments where we would expect to respond in judgment, we respond with mercy. But again, is that how we are known? Is that how the world sees the church as people, when they are shaken and rattled, mercy comes out? Far too often it is judgment. May we be a people who show mercy. Thirdly, all of us need to make a choice. All of us need to make a choice. I would be remiss if I did not invite us to respond to the choice that is before us. We all have a choice, and we can either choose the life that we naturally want, which is life apart from Jesus, or we can choose the one who naturally wants us. This is the reality of the heart and the nature of our king, who, yes, is judge and one day will set the world to rights, but his desire and what he does from his heart is to show mercy he is the one who is slow to anger and rich in mercy, the one who longs to have us turn from our sin and run into his loving arms now and forever. Friends, God's judgment is not about scaring us out of hell, but rather is about lovingly bringing us into his arms of mercy. For as great as our sins are that warrant his judgment, his mercy towards us in Christ is greater. Amen? When we understand the reality of God's heart and how justice and mercy meet beautifully, it changes the way we view ourselves, we view sin, we view Jesus, and the way we view hell. Friends, the truth is that judgment is coming for all of us. There, there's no denying that. There's no escaping that. But the ruling that will, that will come will not be based on whether you lived a good life. It will be based upon whether you surrendered to, delighted in, trusted in, the good king. That is the basis of our judgment, and the choice is yours. Will you try to trust in your ability to outdo all of your evil deeds, or will you trust in the one whose mercy and justice meet beautifully at the cross, where Christ died in our place, satisfying the judgment of God for us completely, once and for all, that we might receive nothing but mercy and forgiveness? Will you choose to drift away from Jesus by following your own heart, or will you receive his mercy that flows from his heart? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask in this time that you would, by your grace, open our eyes to see you. And by your mercy, Lord, remove the, the barriers, the, the, the obstacles, the doubts, and the sin in our lives that keeps us from seeing you rightly and us rightly. 
Lord Jesus, may we understand the power of, of your judgment that is to come, but may we also find comfort in the fact that those who are in Christ Jesus are covered by the lamb that was slain, and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those who are far from you now, who have been afraid of you, who have turned from you for whatever reason, who have lived a life apart from you, would you, by your spirit, draw them near that they might see you as the one who is their hope in life and death. Lord Jesus, be our king, be our judge, and may we rest and trust in you, the one who is the God of justice, who shows mercy and invites us back into right relationship with you. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.